Welcome to Leadership Arts Review, a dynamic podcast about the art and science of leadership. Join us as we explore a different leadership book each episode. We'll help you navigate all the theories and strategies out there and find the elements that work for you. We'll share what we liked, what we learned, and what we recommend. I'm Kate. I'm Nitya. I'm Alyssa. I'm Margaret. In this episode, we are going to be discussing Say What You Mean by Oren J. Sofer. Say What You Mean has the fabulous subtitle, How to Find Your Voice, Speak Your Truth, and Listen Deeply. In this book, Oren J. Sofer combines mindfulness, somatics, and nonviolent communication. He offers some theories and ways of understanding communication and practices that you can use to develop some really powerful ways of being in communication that allow you to feel confident during conversation, stay focused on what really matters, listen for the concerns of the other person so you can incorporate them in your relationship, reduce your own anxiety around difficult conversations and during conversations where your anxiety gets activated, and find nourishment in your day-to-day interactions with other people. These are simple yet powerful practices to develop healthy, effective, and satisfying ways of communicating. I love this book and I brought it forward because I love it. What did you guys think? I really liked it myself. I have so many pages that I've made notes on and I'll probably reread it because there's, and just use it as a reference. I really, really enjoyed this book. I did too. I really enjoyed it and it felt like it took some things that I was familiar with or thought I was familiar with and then took it one step further. I also really like the way it's structured because then going back through it and kind of picking out principles and key points, he does that for you. So it's very easy to read the whole thing and then kind of go back over it. I had forgotten that when I recommended the book, I had completely forgotten that he did that. And here it is. It's like, oh yes, it's a reference, not just the whole book. Yeah. I personally liked that this book is so focused on communication and conversation, which are such important tools in leadership. What you say really matters. Words have value. Words have power. Words have impact. And it's up to us how we choose to use them. And just that very premise spoke to me a lot. And the fact that it has impact beyond our work is made clear throughout the book as well. It helps in personal relationships outside of work. And I think we can all do a little bit better, even those of us who I think communicate thoughtfully or try to be respectful or try to listen. We all have a growth edge when it comes to this stuff. And I like what he points out as some of those pitfalls and even his own pitfalls. And I could relate to a lot of them for sure. Yeah. You know, he's got a lovely light touch when he talks about his own pitfalls. Sometimes when people talk about their own pitfalls in a book like that, it feels like there's a mea culpa piece to it or a sort of confessional piece or they draw attention <laughs> to themselves. And I liked that. Yeah, I, more like, yeah, we all go through this. I go through this too. Here's an example. And then here's what I learned from it. And here's how I change my actions moving forward. Yeah. So the thing that I was thinking about most recently as I was preparing for this conversation is the book is called Say What You Mean. And the subtitle is How to Find Your Voice, 
speak your truth, and listen deeply. And he spends more than the first half of the book talking about listening. Right. (laughs) What do you make of that? Yeah, it's interesting. There are many people who, when thinking about effective communication, are focusing so much on what they say and how they can improve what they say. And the fact that listening is so key to communication, especially nonviolent communication, is counterintuitive for many. And I kind of see that as <laughs> he buried the lead maybe a little bit <laughs> by saying, oh, we're going to sneak in listening somewhere. But actually, it's, once, once you open the book, you know, he's got you. So <laughs> let's, let's get into listening, the thing you didn't expect. The thing you didn't realize was probably actually your problem. Right. Talk yeah. so much about listening to others and how that helps build that trust and build that care and goodwill. And it's kind of saying, well, if you don't listen and people don't feel seen and heard, they're not going to listen to you. So if you want to be seen and heard, first, make sure other people feel seen and heard. And that gets into his concept of seeing the humanity in people. So I agree with you, Nithya. I like the phrase, buried the lead. Mm-hmm. that it's how to find your voice, speak your truth after you've done a lot of listening. But I like the way he starts out with really focusing on yourself, understanding what is driving you and weaves in the mindfulness aspect of how to get back to presence, right? So to me, I thought probably more of that than that a lot of us can be doing. And then when I understand what may be driving me. So The example that came to mind for me is I'm having a discussion with somebody and right off the bat, they say, you're right. Sometimes it doesn't (laughs) feel gratifying because it didn't really address. It wasn't that I wanted to be right. It was there was something else that I wanted to be seen for. Hmm. And, And I thought, wow, you know, that's so powerful because how many times do we think the way to sort of short circuit a potential argument is to say, you know, you're right. And and whether you're right or not, very often there's there's more that's underneath that. It's kind of the tip of the iceberg. So understanding what drives that communication that I'm having for myself first. Right. Yeah, that focus on needs is the heart of the nonviolent communication. And so to the extent that this book is about mindful, nonviolent communication, obviously there's a lot of focus on needs. And one of the things that I know I've learned about myself with doing this kind of work is that I don't always know what my needs are. When I come in with a position into a conversation, I might actually not know what the underlying needs are. And so that piece of presence to oneself listening to oneself as well as listening to other people also shows up in here. Mm -hmm. I also like the way he gives us some lists a couple of times throughout the book, because as we're reading and kind of thinking about this, it can be really hard to get that concrete. And he talks about a couple of things about getting really concrete. So I appreciated having those lists of, Here's a range of feelings that you could be having and giving us the words to be able to articulate the feelings. Yeah. 
followed up by many, many examples of exercises that you can do. I mean, if you ever wanted practical application, there's so many exercises in here, which I actually enjoyed going through those. And you know, what was interesting as I was going through the, some of the exercises is you really have to be vulnerable even with yourself, do you reach a level where it gets a little uncomfortable and still be willing to, to dig deeper, which goes back to the needs and everything. So I, I did like the examples that were in there. And I like that it was part of what I enjoyed so much about the book was his lightness. He weaves a very good story and he makes his points, I thought, very well. And then there were examples and then there were exercises. So you could almost go to any area that you felt was an area of opportunity for growth, the learning edge for yourself, and just start practicing that. I love that about the book. Yeah, I agree. There were a lot of exercises that really jumped out at me. There were also concepts that jumped out. We were talking about the, uh, the discussion of needs and something that really kind of shook me in how insightful it was, was this notion that when you're operating at the level of needs and when you're clear about what the other person needs and what you need, you can support those needs in the other person. So what that really means is when you're not aware of needs and you're just going back and forth about what you think you want and what you're trying to achieve, you miss the core. Um, and I think the exact quote I have here is if we can't support what we've identified in the other party, then we aren't connecting at the level of needs. If you can't get behind it and say, yes, I want that for them, then it's not a need. And it kind of tells us then that needs are so, well, basic and fundamental. They connect all of us. So even if you disagree with everything else that is happening, the idea is that you and that person at the least share those basic needs of wanting to be listened to, wanting to be heard, wanting to be understood, wanting to be validated and I agree with Margaret that that is a vulnerable exercise because I think many of us probably parade around thinking, well, I don't really need validation. I'm good. <laughs> and in reality, in conversation, when we get that reassurance and when we feel like the other person has really seen what we need, it's an incredible feeling. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a, I think, a huge step forward in a conversation if we're able to do that for the other person and see them as another person, just like us, not a, a fight to win or, and, and not a thing to be molded. Yeah. One of the things I loved in the conversation about needs is uh, he touches on what to do with unmet needs in a really neat way in terms of we all have needs and they're not always met in any given moment. And particularly when we're fighting about implementations of things that, that are at the surface that aren't going down at the level of needs. And in the context of disagreement, by being present with the loss of a need, the, the fact that right now this need isn't being met, we can actually connect human to human and build relationship if we can just honor that, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I, I love that the connection to leadership there that Leaders, I feel, are, are responsible for connecting in with the people around them to know what those needs are, where the unmet needs are, and to fill those gaps or attempt to, and to make that effort and not passively sit back and, and let things happen. I like that connection. Yeah. 
It reminds me a lot about the scenario that happens all the time when there's some mandate from the top of the organizational hierarchy and there are people who have to implement that, that mandate that aren't fully on board with it. Yeah. How powerful it is to listen to the concerns, to listen to the other things that might be at play that are not being met and to be open to being influenced, which is a huge part of listening that he talks about in a really profound way, but also being willing to make the hard call. If you're the top of an organization and there are 16 departments that have different needs and you have to make the call about how you're allocating resources, somebody's going to feel that you've slighted them and there's no way around that. And if you really are open to influence, listen to everything, meet people where they're at, honor that you can't meet everybody's needs mm -hmm. and make the hard call cleanly. It's such a healthier way to make those kinds of decisions than to just say, I'm not going to listen because I'm not going to be able to do what you want. So it's just easier to not even listen in the first place. I'm curious to bring up the topic of body because that was surprising to me that a book about how you talk, and even with the conversation we're having about connecting through our words and being aware, everything we're talking about is very cognitive, very in our heads, and hopefully also in our hearts. And he does a lot of talking about really feeling things in our bodies. And I think that that's something that is not always covered in leadership development courses. It's a holistic approach, right? Yeah, I think it's really, really powerful to bring the body in because if the body's not in, you can't actually connect with emotions. And if you can't actually connect with emotions, you can't actually connect with needs. And so unless you can connect with the body, you can't actually have a conversation about what really matters. And it is gutsy for us to be saying this is a leadership capacity thing is to be in touch with your body. And I 100% believe that it's true. And I think that for some people, the connection is easier to make if it goes through the brain, that if you bring the neuroscience in, it can be easier to make that connection. He talks about needing to settle your nervous system because when we get emotional and we get reactive, that gets triggered in our whole body nervous system. And for a lot of people, when they get anxious, the ways that they settle that are most effective are, what do I see? What am I touching? Where's my weight? How warm is it? Those kinds of attentions to what is real, tangible, and it's right there in the body. So I think that's a, a way in for people who aren't sure that the body is something they should be bringing to work. That's true. I definitely would formerly put myself in that category, Kate, that you're describing that any and all things live in the brain, <laughs> operating <laughs> highly uh, cerebrally. And it, it's only recently that I myself have gotten in touch with my own body and understand the role of that in how I show up. And one exercise that I felt highlighted exactly what you're saying was the orienting exercise in the resilience section, which was probably one of my favorite exercises in the whole book. And it's just what you were describing around taking in what's around you and noticing it at a level of detail that you might not otherwise notice, but also then noticing our reactions. And I think what struck me about it was, was that reorienting is a return to safety 
And that, that was a new concept for me. I think that many of us may think about reorienting as, as some sort of stasis that our brains are just in for, you know, optimal powering through stuff. Like, let me get to that point. But really, it's a much more basic need of safety that when we're aware of what's going on, we're connected to our environment and to our bodies, we feel safer. And so I would imagine that's then less likely to evoke the threat response in, in communication because we feel like our needs are met. We're good here. Let's keep going. So I, I loved that. Yeah. You know, when you bring up the point of safety, there's something that I really love about the way that he talks about activation in general uh, that I don't hear as a nuance very often in the people who are talking about the threat response most of the time. He points out that activation is not just the threat response, but there's also activation that's the aliveness of excitement associated with goal setting. Mm -hmm. And that actually the, the nervous system is activated in the same way with goal setting as it is with threat in some very fundamental ways. And I'm reminded of my very first sales training. My trainer said to me, when you're feeling nervous, remember that nervous and excited feel the same in your body. Mm, yeah. And so if you're feeling nervous, you say to yourself, what am I excited about? And then your brain will find the answer to that question because our brains are really good at finding an answer to any question we pose it like that. And it will find some evidence of something you're excited about. What am I excited about? And then cognitively, there's this feedback loop. I'm excited. Yes, checking in with my body. The adrenaline's up. I'm excited. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. It's like the clue that something matters to us, right? Yeah. Cool. Which gets to the sort of third piece of the book in terms of the actual talking about focus on what matters. Uh, he, he starts with come with presence and then he talks about curiosity and care, which we haven't talked about at all yet, but then focus on what matters. And he's saying needs matter, relationship matters. Yeah. And this sense of safety matters. Yeah. What do we, people think about the stuff that he talked about in terms of curiosity and care? Well, I think anytime we can be curious about what's going on with not only ourselves, but then the other person, right? So I feel like the first section, he talks a lot about getting very present with yourself. And then when, when you think about now, you want to have a conversation, some kind of interaction with others, you know, you want to try to have some sense of what might be going on with them and being, to me, willing to be curious and explore that and understand that. And I thought it was a very effortless flow from one section to the next to the other. There were points where you talked a lot about empathy and the attention, but to me, it also felt that there was a lot of empathy in the intention, which was the second piece, the curiosity and, and care, because it's about willingness to shift our view. So take a different perspective and being willing to do that, being open to do that. Because sometimes we're attached to something and it's hard, very often hard to let go of that. Really hard. Really, <laughs> really, really hard. <laughs> I actually had a student the other day, we were talking about coming from curiosity as opposed to being committed to being right. And she said, but I deal with numbers. I mean, I am right. When yeah. I present this stuff, I am right. Yeah. It really made me laugh. I was like, okay, then that's where you're going to stand. And, <laughs> and at that moment in time, 
that's where you are. At the end of every section, he's got a Q&A from live sessions that he had. So I loved that because I read them all with such interest because I'm like, yes, that is, that's a great question. And one of them was, well, how do I relate to somebody who isn't willing to, because this, you know, there's this sense of like, well, we're going to have this communication and you're, you'll be on the same page because I'm going to show up a certain way and we're going to have this openness. And sometimes people just aren't open. And he talks about the fact that that's okay. They can be that way, but you just keep working on it yourself, right? It doesn't have to be 50-50 because very often it's not going to be, especially when you get into maybe a very contentious or heated situation. And that's where then he'll circle back to, if it's a challenge, need to go back to that presence. So it seemed to me that as we go through this, it's, it's linear in the way he, he describes it, but in real practice, you are constantly cycling back through the different steps. The only people that would have ever achieved this kind of thing are like the Dalai Lama or <laughs> Nelson Mandela, right? The rest of us yeah. are triggered every time we turn around. <laughs> we mere mortals are. <laughs> we're human beings. I did like the quote that when we're triggered, we're all beginners. Yes. yes. When we're triggered, we're all beginners. We don't have the skillfulness. And the, the story that he tells in that one about talking to one of the nonviolent communication trainers who's responding to an email and his response is, why don't you give an empathic response? And she's like, that's empathy 101. And I couldn't see it. When we get triggered, we get hooked and we are not skillful. So the quote that I loved, this actually made me laugh out loud. I had to write it down. And I can't recall who said it, but, oh, it's a Tibetan Buddhist teacher. Spiritual practice is one insult after another. And I thought, oh, my God, that's so true, right? (laughs) As soon as we think we've got one thing handled, boom, there's the next one. Oh, Lord. I'd like to ask a question. Because there were definitely things in this book that stretched my thinking and that challenged me. And one of the things I'm just curious to get your take on are the two questions. The, what do you want the other person to do? And what do you want their reasons to be for doing this? Because I had a little trouble wrapping my head around that. Because whenever I hear that, that someone wants someone to want to do that, my initial reaction is, That's not something we can control. And what I'm hearing is that, yeah, we can't control it, but we can influence it. We can give more of the why. And I'm actually just trying to check that with you because when I hear, you know, what do you want their reasons to be? I hear the line from the breakup of, I want you to want to wash the dishes. (laughs) And he says, why would I want to wash the dishes? So I I, I think it's interesting that you go to a personal, not a professional anecdote to bring that because actually I notice it the most in my relationship with my kids. Hmm. There are things around the house that I want my kids to do because I have so many hours a day and there are more tasks than I have capacity. And so I want my kids to do things. This is typical parenting. And when I first started parenting, I didn't really care why they did it. I just wanted it done. I would say it's time to do the dishes or the laundry and they would start fighting me on it. And so I, at some point made the decision that I was going to empower them to say no to me 
on chores. And then it was going to be my job to enroll them in wanting to do chores. So I started doing things like saying, I don't have time to take you to the park today because I have to do the dishes, the laundry, and the yard work. If you mm -hmm. really want to go to the park next weekend, you would make sure that we get to the weekend without my having to do all those tasks. And they wanted to do the tasks because there was something in it for them at that point. And then when they said yes and they did things, I was genuinely delighted. And then I could be genuinely delighted and genuinely express gratitude. And so it took a lot of my being willing to have them say no for it to change things around. But now that they're teenagers, when I say I need your help with something, they jump. Hmm. Wow. Which is pretty cool. I thought you were going to say something like, you know, they figured out how to get a ride to the park with their friends. Mom <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, some, sometimes that's what happens. Yes. And sometimes they say no. <laughs> Giving them ideas, sorry, but... Margaret. <laughs> I'm, I may or may not have figured that out. I was kind of a child Margaret was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, when you were sharing that, Kate, and going back to Alyssa's question, I was reminded of actually Margaret's earlier point on hearing the phrase, okay, you're right, in a conversation without further engagement. It kind of ties to that for me, which is that without that understanding of why and without understanding motivation, it doesn't feel like true understanding has taken place. And you just wonder if someone is giving up or yielding or just wants to stop talking or it, it could have any number of reasons for doing that. It doesn't feel as fulfilling as when true connection has been made. And I think, I, I would imagine that that's why Kate shared that she has this sense of delight when true understanding has taken place. Yeah. There's something about if you give someone permission to say no, and they say yes, it just intuitively, naturally inspires gratitude. I did like that point about the difference between a request and a demand. Mm -hmm. Because I'm sure we've all witnessed situations where someone asks us, asks, and I'm doing air quotes, asks <laughs> us to do something, and there really isn't an opportunity to say no. So the point he brings up about how no can actually open a door to some more creativity, to be willing to accept that no and explore it. Yeah, I particularly loved the exercises in the no conversation, because uh, I know that in certain relationships that have been really important in terms of getting my goals met, I've actually had to do a lot of work before I made a request, really becoming okay with the possibility of no as an answer in order to be able to figure out how to navigate a complex conversation. And not nearly always, but every now and then, something that I really expected to be a no that was really important to me, when I did that work on myself before I went into the conversation, I actually got a yes Usually not in exactly the way I had imagined the yes being, but there was room for creativity. And then the other one is you know, just being present with the feelings that arise when you hear no, or with the discomfort that you might have when saying no, 
and that for that place of bringing the presence to just being with the experience of no so powerful one of the things that i liked from a business perspective is when he references using please and thank you which can sound like the preemptive directive because very often they are and I realized, so I'm reading it and I realized that just recently, not in a business setting, but in something that was somewhat business, I actually had used that. And I realized it did sound the way I did not intend it. And I liked the changing the please to, would you be willing to? Because then you're, I'm inviting somebody and I'm, and I'm showing that I'm willing to accept like a yes, no counter offer. Right. And it felt more inviting and open-minded and not like that. Thank you in advance for your cooperation. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There was a lovely nuance in that section because he talked about words getting cultural baggage. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I see happen a lot when talk about how do I phrase this to avoid that cultural baggage is we come up with language that avoids that cultural baggage And we use it trying to remind ourselves to get to the intention of being really compassionate and actually caring and being willing to say no and and hear no and all of that stuff. And we use it for a few years and then we get sloppy and it that new language accumulates the same baggage and we have to at that point get even new language. And I think that's really he hammers on it at the end where he's like. This is not about what words to use. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's the amazing quote at the beginning, at least in my copy, from Chuang Tzu that talks about this. And I was going to share this a little later, but the gist of it is words exist because of meaning. Once you've gotten the meaning, you can forget the words. Where can I find a person who has forgotten words so I can have a word with them? And that just drives home to me that it's not about the words, it's the meaning behind the words. And in a way that ties it all together too, because hence the focus on the body and on listening, because all of these are tools to get at meaning rather than focusing on the specifics of the words. Yeah. Presence, intention, attention. None of those are words. None of them are tactics. One of the things that I liked that I thought is great practice in a business application, really anywhere, but in particular business, is in the attention section, you know, working on uh, separating observations from judgment, right? Not tying them together. And I love the example that he gave of the woman who was trying to reach somebody on the phone and for the first two days they weren't there. And then she was told to call back at nine in the morning. She called back at nine in the morning and they said, oh, that person's not here, Uh, their car broke down. And she lamented, I guess I wasn't supposed to go. I guess that means I wasn't supposed to go on that retreat. And the the person on the other line said, no, it means that Steve's car broke down. (laughs) And I thought, it's so true, right? We read so much into things and we start making these judgments in our mind and and we make up stories, right? We start, and we have a whole story built out before we actually just stick with what the observation is and take emotion and judgment out of it. It's a great way to further relationships and communication, I think. Yeah. And that idea of what would the video recorder see? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That was another good one. 
That's such a great tool for feedback in general in business and in other settings to say there are a hundred models for feedback, but if we were to use that one, what would an audio or video recorder capture? It's so much more objective and, and therefore hopefully takes the, the judgment and the emotion out of it. Yeah. There was a lovely nuance in the I statements piece in that discussion that I think is really, really valuable. I had run across it in this book and then somebody else mentioned it and I went, oh, I read about it in that book and I haven't started implementing it and I've been trying to implement it, but I'm still a beginner at it, which <laughs> is that place of instead of saying when you do something, I feel to say, when I see that thing that can be described by the video camera, I feel so that the whole thing from the seeing of the observable fact to my reaction happens in my head. And I have found that super powerful. It becomes all about me and owns yeah. that it's all about me and that none of that has any bearing on what your intention was, how you're interpreting the situation, any of that. It gives a person a chance to clean up any unintended impact without judgment on the action they took. And there was something else about saying, I feel and putting a feeling as opposed to following it with a pronoun. I can't find the exact place. He had so many good things about how to not finish sentences that start, I feel. He had this wonderful section on things that aren't feeling. I feel attacked. No, you don't. I feel it's <laughs> a judgment. Right. You might feel. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the words that, was great. that the words that actually mean, or you're putting the blame on somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. I feel attacked is just a subtle way of saying you attacked me. <laughs> right. Whereas actually I'm making a judgment that I was attacked based on the fact that I am sad yeah, or I feel hurt or I feel disappointed or I feel something. But when I then say I feel attacked, it's like, actually, I feel sad. You did this behavior. You made me sad because you did this thing. When, you know, if you'd done it when I'd been in a different mood, I might not end up sad. So maybe it's in my head. Yeah. I'm reminded of an example I had with a client very similar to this topic that we're discussing where we were talking about I statements and, and feedback and perception versus reality and all of these wonderful things. And, and, and the concept of the video recorder came up too. And my client was saying at the time in reference to another colleague of theirs, you're incompetent. So the question was, what would you want to say to this person? It's you're incompetent. So we're trying to come back to an I statement that, that wouldn't so much be an attack on the other person. And, and I kind of explained the concept of, of I statements. And I wish I'd had this book at that time to better explain it because the way that I explained it, which is very rudimentary, I said, okay, try and rephrase what you want to say to this colleague from this I place, talking about your experience. And my client said, I think you're incompetent. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, well, we, we, uh, we didn't get very far in that particular <laughs> instance. 
existence. And, it, and it's just a reminder that the way he talks about it here is so clear and, and much more precise. So I think if any of you out there listening are struggling with this the way my client was and the way I sometimes do, that list is very helpful. And I think there's something there too, Nithya, about that idea of do feelings belong at work? Because what you're saying is, no, the sentence should be, I feel blank, not I feel like this because that's a thought. Yes. Or I feel as if you're not listening. Right. Which is not a feeling at all. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And now that I look back on the situation, of course, I can't know for sure. But if I were to make it up, uh, I would imagine that what my client was feeling was unsupported. Uh, so there's some other feeling there that, that wasn't getting named, maybe unsupported, maybe um, uh, left behind. I think the thing that becomes really clean in the question about are feelings appropriate at work when you work with feelings this way is that the feelings just become neutral. They just become a source of information. They don't become blamey and overwhelmy. And it's, if somebody cries at work, nobody has to feel bad about doing it. It's an expression of information in the system that you can then do something with. Or if somebody shouts and it's an expression of a need that's not being met and you can take some of the blame out of the system. The shouting one is interesting because I was in a coaching session this week with someone who was trying to solve shouting behavior and one of their team members that they're responsible for. And the person that they kept shouting at was actually provoking the shouting on a regular basis by stonewalling a little bit and expressing contempt. And both of the people needed to feel respected. Yeah. And both of them had ways that triggered each other of when they didn't feel respected and they weren't clear about what that was at, what they actually needed, their instinctive responses were one was to back down and shut up and one was to shout. And the shouty one <laughs> had been identified as the problem, but the problem was not actually that somebody was shouting. It was actually that there was a lack of mutual respect. And so then after this coaching session, he went back knowing my job to solve this problem is to inject respect into the system. Wow. Yeah, there's so much in here. I feel like we could talk about this book for weeks. I know. And pulling out the nuances of each of the different sections and each of the different exercises and what are the actual implications of practicing this particular principle in that particular scenario there's so much. One of the things that I really liked was how he recapped at the end, which was really learning about how to be aware of what is going on with ourselves so that we can see the other person and be present with them and ourselves. I love that. I thought that was just a wonderful way to kind of uh, recap the book. And now it's think away time. Each of our hosts will leave us with one thought, idea, question, or practice to think about and take away. So if there's one thing as a think away, what do you got? So my think away is what is the first step that you can take that will have the biggest impact on your relationships, personal and professional? Somebody else. So my takeaway is how can you work on that connection that involves your brain, 
your heart, your feelings, and your body. My think away comes from an opening anecdote in the book that has to do with asking for help and voicing what you need. He has a story of a woman in chronic pain who had to go through a move and was struggling with asking her friends and family for help. And we often hope that other people will just see and understand what we need without our having to ask. But the truth is people can't read our minds. So my think away for listeners is where's the opportunity in your life or your work to be voicing a need? Where might you be assuming other people know what you need, but they really don't unless you put words to it. So my think away is in the putting it all together section of the book, he talks about the dance of a conversation and that some people listen better than they speak up and some people speak up better than they listen. And that once you've noticed your tendency for maximum flexibility, practice stretching into whichever one is your weakness. And so my think away is, are you better at listening or speaking up? And where could you practice the one that you're weaker at? And now to put this book on the tree of leadership wisdom. Is this book at the roots foundational knowledge? Is it the trunk main body of practical wisdom? Or is it branches and specific tools? For me, this book is genius at the tips and tools for if you're having a difficult conversation, how can you practice being better and so that is branches work for me it's a very specific problem that it's solving and for me i put it as a trunk because i like the all the prep for a lot of the same reasons kate but in my mind it's a trunk because it, it is a very solid reference manual one that's a reference manual that you can just keep going back to for tips and a lot of self-work and i love that about it I put this in the trunk. I think that there is so much day-to-day practices. This is the first thing I've ever read that made presence tangible. I really feel like this is one that you could go back to as reference again and again and keep learning it layer by layer. Keep going back to it and say, okay, I think I've got this part down. Where else can I improve? You know, interestingly, Alyssa, that's the very reason I categorized it as a branch book. Because when I see myself going back to it, it is to grab those phrases, those exercises, those quick practices, or those questions from the Q&A to refresh my memory and to reintegrate into my leadership practice. I find this book highly practical in the best way. So for me, it's a branch book. This 
This was Leadership Arts Review. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts. You can find more information and additional resources on our website at podcast.leadershipartsreview.com. Continue the conversation by following us on Twitter under Leadership Arts and Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn under Leadership Arts Review. Leadership Arts Review is a 4 Impala production. Music adapted by 4 Impala from Nathaniel Wyvern's Sanctuary of the Sky Gods under license.